Now we find ourselves here in Ruth chapter 2. Our story continues. If you weren't here last week, a woman named Naomi found herself in Moab, lost her husband, lost her sons, and is left as a widow with her daughter-in-law Ruth returning to the land of Israel with nothing. That's where we find ourselves today, Ruth chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, that's Naomi's husband, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers said, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for your word. Pray that it would bear great fruit in our lives today, that you would lead us to all understanding, to know, love, treasure, and apply this passage of scripture. It's for your name we pray. Amen. Christians believe that God is in control of everything. And that sounds good, but if you think about it for a minute, it creates a problem. A problem that philosophers call the problem of evil. If God really is in control of everything, and if he really is good, then how on earth could there be evil in the world? Today, I'm not going to answer that question, because it's a hard one. But what I want what I, want to, I want to ask a related question. I want to ask you, in light of this problem that a good God who's in control of everything allows evil to be in the world, how on earth can we trust him in times and seasons of trials? And the answer to that question, how can we trust God in a world full of trials? is because of his character. We are able to trust God, no matter our circumstances, because of his character, because of who he is, because of what he is like, because of his disposition towards us, which is a disposition not of condemnation, but of kindness and care and mercy. And God's character is displayed nowhere in all of history or all of creation more clearly than at the cross of Christ, where God's justice was on full display as the penalty for our sins was laid upon the sinless one because someone had to take that punishment. Couldn't be ignored. The justice of God was on full display. And the unparalleled kindness of God was also on full display because the person on that cross wasn't the sinners who deserved it, but the sinless one, the Son of God, dying in our place. There's nowhere throughout all of history or anywhere in creation where you can more clearly see the character of God than at the cross. And here, in the book of Ruth, more than a thousand years before Christ walked the earth, we see a foretaste of that character, a foretaste of that deliverance fully displayed at the cross, but which was still central and crucial to the character of God because our God has never changed and he never will change. A thousand years before Christ came, he was merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for sinners and sufferers like you. And at the time of Christ, he was merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for sinners and sufferers like you. And here we are 2,000 years after Christ, and our God is still merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for sinners and sufferers like you and like me. He's never changed and he never will. We see a picture of that in Ruth chapter 2. The book of Ruth tells a story about the God who redeems. 
And what I want you to take away from our study in the book of Ruth is that God is able to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations. God's able to bring light into the darkest corners of our life. Last week, we focused on the reality of suffering and how God is able to bring hope into our suffering by using our trials for His good, for His glory, for His purposes. And this week, we're going to continue reading the story of Ruth, and we're going to specifically see God's care for sufferers. God is not merely trying to use your trials. He's trying to help you as a tried one. God's not just trying to use your suffering. He's trying to help and comfort you as a sufferer. And that's what we see in Ruth chapter 2. So the story begins, or it continues rather. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's. Remember, he passed away in the land of Moab. A worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So this act of the story is introduced by peppering your expectations, saying there's somebody really important coming, and his name is Boaz. Hold on to your seats. He's coming. I promise it's great. Chapter two, or verse 2, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Gleaning was a crucial practice in the ancient world where, where a, a typically a poor person would walk along behind the harvesters and they would pick up any tiny heads of grain that might have been left behind or might have been dropped on the ground. It was slow, tedious work. And it wasn't a great way to make a living. But for a widowed woman like Ruth, living in poverty, there was no other way. There was no other option. And God, because of his mercy and compassion for the oppressed, for the downcast, for the overlooked, God actually baked gleaning into the laws and the structures of his people, Israel. So he commanded the Israelites to allow for gleaning and to even make it easy and to make it more fruitful. In Leviticus 19, God wrote to his people, when you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not reap your field right up to, the, to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them there for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. God commands his people, don't be a perfectionist. As you bring in the harvest, leave a little bit there for the poor and for the sojourner. Sojourner means refugee. People coming from a different land, people who've been displaced. And so God has care for people like that, people who are poor, people who are downcast, people who are oppressed, people who are uncomfortable, and that care motivates him to create this law out of the fullness of his own goodness. You know, if you love someone, you're going to do whatever it takes to provide for them. Whatever it takes to provide for them. That's why we have life insurance, right? Because if, if something were to happen to us, we would want our loved ones, our children, our spouses to be taken care of. 
And God will never die. He, does, he has no need of life insurance, but he still has people that he cares for, and he's going to see to it that they are provided for. And so the kindness of God is shown in the kindness of his people to the poor, to the sojourner, to the oppressed. God's people were to reflect his mercy to others. And Ruth, she, she's interesting Maybe she knows about the law, the gleaning laws in Israel. Maybe she doesn't. She's not from Israel. She didn't grow up reading Leviticus. But she, she specifically says she wants to go and glean in a field after him in whose sight I shall find favor. In whose sight I shall find favor. Now that's a very technical, legal, specific phrase that Ruth is employing here. It's something that, uh, that a person, a needy person, would say to appeal to a higher authority, typically a king, and, to, and just say, can I find favor in your eyes? Can you show mercy to me? Can you show kindness to me? Even though God is just and demanded that gleaning would be allowed, Ruth acknowledges the fact that people aren't just, people aren't kind, people aren't merciful. Ruth expected maybe someone might deny me that right because I'm from Moab. But Naomi likes the plan, and Naomi says, Go, my daughter, verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Remember, that's Naomi's former husband her late husband. And it just so happened that Ruth ended up in that field. Isn't that just a neat little coincidence? No, it's not a neat little coincidence. The author of Ruth is actually employing pagan language here to get you to sit up and be like, huh, that is a, that's pretty unlikely that out of all the fields in Bethlehem, she would end up in that one. That's really neat. I wonder how that happened. It happened because God is in control of everything. This is like if you were telling a story to someone and you wanted to highlight a, an event that was very unlikely, you would say, and you know, it just so happened that I ran into Emily at the coffee shop and you wouldn't believe what she said to me. I'm just highlighting the fact that it was unlikely and it was wonderful. It was good fortune that came my way. But we don't believe in accidents. We don't believe in luck. We don't believe in fortune. We believe in a God who is in control of all things. So I don't want you to see that and be like, oh, that's neat. That's a cool coincidence. I want you to think that, wow, God is in control and he cares for his people. And Naomi's even going to make this explicit later on in this chapter. Chapter 2, verse 20, Naomi says to Ruth, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. So whose kindness was it that brought Ruth into this field? It was the kindness of the Lord orchestrating these experiences. Story continues, verse 4. And behold, behold. You ever seen a, a movie and right before the hero steps in, you hear the music start to swell and build and it's amazing and you're like, oh, something's about to happen. I don't know what it is. And then the superhero comes out and he's like, yeah, I'm going to win the battle. It's amazing. Behold, that's what's happening here. Behold. It's drawing a lot of attention because the hero is coming. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Ba -ba -bum. And he said to the reapers, he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. 
And they answered, the Lord bless you. First impressions matter a lot, even in literature. My favorite books are the Harry Potter books. And the very first line of the Harry Potter books, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. And, and those first impressions set the tone for those characters for the rest of the series. Thousands and thousands of pages. And from the very first line, we're given the impression that these people are uppity and snobbish and you don't really want anything to do with them. Sure, they're perfectly normal, but who's defining what normal is? They are. First impressions matter a lot. And here, we get a first impression of Boaz. And what's the first impression we get of Boaz? That he's a godly man. The first words out of his mouth are a blessing that he's wishing God's kindness and God's favor onto his employees. So the author of Ruth doesn't want you to walk away and think Boaz is a great guy. The author of Ruth wants you to walk away and think Boaz is a godly guy. And he literally comes onto the stage here in the name of God. And so when he shows mercy and kindness to people, that's not just himself. He's acting as God's representative. He's showing God's kindness to people, and he's going to show God's kindness. Verse 5, then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, this is like the foreman, the supervisor, the, the head servant. Boaz has a question for him. He says, who, whose young woman is this? He sees Ruth in the field. He asks about her. She's out of place. She's out of place. She's a young woman. She should be married and at home, not in the field. She stands out to Boaz. And I think, I think, you can take this for what it's worth, but I think based on what Boaz does in the rest of this chapter, he's not just interested in Ruth because he's curious, oh, where'd this lady come from? I think there's a little something going on if you know what I'm talking about. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. Just, just stick with me. You'll see. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Now, I want you to notice here the very first words that the, that the foreman says to Boaz is that she's young. She's young. The story for Ruth isn't over. She's got a lot of life ahead of her. So far, everything has gone wrong for Ruth. She lost her husband. And like we said last week, that was a tough situation for a woman to be in in this culture, in this time. Who was going to provide for her? Who was going to care for her? Who was going to provide sons for her that could continue the family line and care for her in her old age? This is the main crisis in the book of Ruth is that Ruth doesn't have a husband anymore. And the foreman says, she's young. There's hope. The story's not over. And so what happened? The foreman tells Boaz what happened that morning. Verse 7, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. She's staying, she's remaining, she's working hard, she's persevering. And then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, 
So he's, he's heard about Ruth. He's gone, the, he's gone the 411, and then he calls Ruth over, and he talks to her. He addresses her, and he says, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. There is so much significance in Boaz's words. First, he calls Ruth, my daughter. Absolutely every social norm separates Boaz and Ruth. Ruth is a woman. Boaz is a man. Ruth is a foreigner. Boaz is an Israelite. Every social norm says they've got to stay as far away from one another as possible. And Boaz says, I don't care. I'm calling her close. She's my daughter. He speaks as if he is a father to her. And he's not doing that in a patronizing way like, oh, come here, little girl. Let me take care of you, you weak one. He's doing it in a gentle and protecting way. He's saying, I'm going to look out for you. You're not alone anymore. I'm going to show God's kindness to you. When everything in Ruth ought to send Boaz running for the hills, he breaks down those barriers. And when everything in you ought to cause God to run for the hills, he runs towards you with grace and mercy. Our God is a God who breaks down the barriers of sin that ought to drive us far away from him. Remember, Boaz is modeling the love of God, showing the love of God. He came in the name of God and he's going to act in the name of God. So he says, my daughter, and the next word's really interesting. He says, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. He says the same thing twice. He says, don't leave and don't go. Because he really wants Ruth to stay. And he says, keep close to my young women. That, those words, keep close, the same word used in chapter 1, verse 16, that when Ruth clung to Naomi and saying, I'm not going anywhere. Boaz is inviting Ruth into his family, his household that way, saying, Ruth, don't go anywhere. Boaz is extending the same kind of till death do us part kind of love to Ruth that Ruth had previously shown to Naomi. Again, he's telling her, don't leave. Stick with my young women. They know where the reapers are going. They know the best ways to do the gleaning. Just stick with them. They'll show you the ropes. And then he invites Ruth to the water. He says, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And again, this is the reversal of every cultural norm. Boaz is flipping over tables and offending people like nobody's business. He's saying, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. In this society, women did not go to the young men's water. The women drew the water from the well for the men. The foreigners drew the water from the well for the Israelites. Ruth is at the bottom of the social pyramid 
And Boaz says, I'm going to give you the privilege of an Israelite. Come in and drink the water. And he gives a command to the men. He says, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Boaz is defending Ruth's dignity in an age where women were often demeaned and taken advantage of and abused. In that society, Boaz, modeling the love of God, representing the name of God, says no. We're not going to treat women that way. We're not going to use and abuse this woman that way. I read, I read one author who said that Boaz was setting up the first anti-sexual harassment policy in the workplace. He's protecting Ruth. Uh, friends, so often you will hear the charge that the Bible is anti-woman. I can't find the anti-woman verses in there. Because they're not, the Bible was vastly ahead of its time on the treatment of women. The law of God in the Old Testament gave women a voice when they were often left defenseless against any charge. The heroes of the Bible, men like Boaz, are demonstrated as people who defend the honor and dignity of women. And the men in the Bible who demean or take advantage or abuse women are completely condemned. The Bible upholds the value and dignity of women, and it condemns anyone that would take advantage of them. So friends, we have to defend the value and honor and dignity of women. We have to uphold the worthiness of, of these image bearers. Women have value, even if they're not married, even if they have a different life than you do. Women have value. Value, single men who desire to be married, don't write off single moms because there are godly single moms in our culture, in our society that you could pursue, that you could get to know, that you could serve, maybe even marry. Women who have been abused you have, been, you have been violated. And those actions are indefensible in the name of God. Boaz is acting in the character of God when he protects women rather than condemn them, rather than abuse them, rather than take advantage of them. Those the abuse and the exploitation of women, indefensible. And it will not be tolerated in our church. And so women, if you have been abused, and I know that many of you have shared your story even with me, you are seen, not just by me. I want to care for you however I can. I don't always know how, but I want to care for you, but you're seen by our God. And Boaz is proving it to you when he comes in the name of the God and he, and he looks at his servants and he says, don't you dare. And so women, you are seen. 
And I want to take this opportunity to address young women in this room, teenagers and preteens especially. And I want you to say, I want you to know that this is a place where you will be defended. If any adult or peer does anything to your body or anything else that makes you feel uncomfortable or unsafe, then you come and talk to someone in this church right away. You will be kept safe. You will be defended. You will not be blamed. You will not be condemned. And we have to say that, friends, because unfortunately, sexual abuse has often run rampant in the church and been unchecked. And that's a tragedy, and it's a travesty, and it's a sin, and we need to repent. We can't do that. We can't allow that. It may it never be in our church. Men, don't even think about taking advantage of a woman. You will not find a hiding place here. But women, you will. You will find refuge and protection here. By God's grace, I pray. It's an open invitation. Boaz offers this astounding protection to Ruth. And Ruth responds. Then she fell, verse 10, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground. This is something that you would do before a king, not a farmer. This is the second time in this chapter that Boaz is being treated with kingly language. Boaz is standing in the place of a king. It's peppering our expectations that this story might have a royal conclusion. Keep, keep reading, Ruth. It's good stuff. She bowed to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner. Ruth's just acknowledging it. She's like, dude, this is weird. Everything in society, everything in your culture, Boaz, ought to separate us. Why are you taking notice of me? Verse 11, but Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. So word has spread around town. Boaz has heard about it and he respects it. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Ruth has left behind everything that she has ever known to cast her lot in with God and his people. Verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz is saying explicitly what we've been saying all along. His kindness is representative of God's kindness. He's the channel through which God's mercy is flowing to Ruth. And God provided for Ruth because she ran to refuge for him under his wings. Under his wings. It's an image of a mama bird calling her babies in close to the warmth, to, to the protection of being under her wings. Did you know that more than half of the eaglets in the United States don't survive infancy? That's, I mean, we treat eagles like pretty legit here in the United States. They're like our national bird and stuff. Like, eagles are, are very defense, like, defended. Like, nobody goes out and be like, yeah, I was eagle hunting this weekend. And they're like, okay, like, go to Canada. You're kicked out. We're done with you. Nobody's, 
Nobody's hunting eagle. I mean, people apparently do cause trouble, trouble, problems for eagles. I learned about that this week. Interesting. Google it. Um, but an eagle, a baby eaglet, is completely hopeless unless if its mother calls it under her wings and protects her. And we are completely hopeless, completely helpless, completely defenseless unless God welcomes us under his wings. Ruth was completely defenseless unless God welcomed her under his wings. We've got danger on the outside, trials and temptation and suffering and sickness. There's a lot of danger out there. We need God to protect us. But also there's danger on the inside. That we are people who are sick with sin. And we need God's help. We need him to protect us. Because we are broken on the inside. We're sinners. Our hearts don't love the right things. Therefore, we don't do the right things or think the right things or say the right things. And because we live in a sinful world full of danger and destruction and curse, so God calls you in and he says, come under my wing, sufferer. Come under my wing, sinner. Not because you've earned it, but by my grace. By my grace. Boaz even says that the Lord is repaying Ruth for what he has done, for what she has done. A full reward be given to Ruth by the Lord, the God of Israel. But even the grounds of that is that Ruth has fled to the Lord for refuge. The Bible talks a lot about rewards being given to God's people. And this is not good people earning something good from God. It's God's goodness overflowing on people who are overlooked in this life. It's almost always how the Bible talks about rewards. And how did Ruth get those rewards for herself? By fleeing to God for refuge. And friends, you can find protection and refuge and life and salvation by running to God and resting under his wings. God calls sinners and sufferers like us in, and he does that by his son. Verse 13, then she said, Ruth said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Notice here, really interesting, what does Ruth thank Boaz for? His kindness, his protection, his letting her glean, none of those things. He thanks, she thanks him for his words. She says, you've spoken kindly, you've comforted me. Friends, words have power, so use them gently. Use them to help, not harm. Use them to build people up, to point others towards God. Not to self-aggrandize yourself. Not to protect yourself. Not just to have a good time. Use your words gently for the good of others. 
Verse 14, and at mealtime, so later in that day, Boaz said to her, come here. He calls Ruth in again, upending every social convention. Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. He's inviting a foreigner to come and eat the bread that he prepared for his workers. And he's even more specifically inviting Ruth to dip her bread in the wine. That's like a condiment. He's saying, I don't want you to get by. I want you to survive. I want you to live. I want you to thrive. It's going to be awesome. Again, I think there's a little something going on here, if you know what I mean. I think Boaz might have, might have some, some motivation here. I don't know. Let's keep reading. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her the roasted grain. Boaz is acting like a servant to provide for the needs of an unworthy person. That's interesting, isn't it? Does that remind you of anyone else in the Bible? It reminds you of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, didn't consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead took on the form of a servant and humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ described himself as a servant. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ died in your place to forgive your sins, to welcome you in. Christ is a servant. Boaz is a servant. Boaz humbles himself to feed Ruth. Christ humbles himself to feed his sheep. And Ruth ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Boaz is just radically, embarrassingly, stupidly generous. He's radical about this. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, so she, after lunch, she's getting back up to work, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. He's saying, don't just make her like pick stuff off the ground. Like make sure she gets some good stuff like off the, off the sheaves. Like basically saying like, Leave some, leave some cookies on the bottom shelf for her. We're going to make it easy for her. And don't embarrass her about that. So he's saying the young men are not to like walk and be like, oh, left one for your Ruth, you, you big lazy person. They're not to reproach her. They're not to embarrass her. Verse 16, and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. Not just like skip some so she has some, some low-hanging fruit to pull. But he's also saying, after you've done your work, then just every couple steps, maybe like throw some grain on the ground that she could pick up. Boaz is being radically generous here. And the fruit of that, verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. It was about six gallons. Six gallons. That's a ton of grain for one woman to collect by gleaning in a day. This astounding, lavish care of God on this needy, downcast woman. God was able to bring six gallons of grain to Ruth. And he is able to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations. He provided for Ruth through a faithful servant who held nothing back. And he provides for you through a faithful servant who held nothing back. Not even his own life. 
not even his own life. That's what Christ did, friends. Died to serve you, to save you, to welcome you, to feed you. Every blessing that you have is a blood-bought blessing. And then Christ rose victoriously from the grave, conquering death forever. The worst trial that you might face is eternal death. And we ought to experience that because we've all sinned against the holy God. We've all looked at this kind God and spat in his face. We deserve eternal death. And Christ took it in our place, swallowed it in our place, and then conquered it forever. So he's not just this weak guy saying, come on, come on, little people, and gather under my wings. He's a strong, mighty eagle, and he is soaring, and he is saving, and he is powerful. So run to him, friends. If you're not a Christian today, what is holding you back from running to this strong and powerful and gracious God? Come to know him. And so how do we trust God when he brings us into trials? Because of his character, seen here in Ruth chapter 2 and seen ultimately at the cross and the resurrection of Christ. So what do we do here in light of this? How do we prepare for trials and walk through trials? I want to share three ideas with you in closing. Invite the music team up. The first thing is we need to prepare for trials, not just by gathering insurance and like prepping and collecting a bunch of cans of beans that can last through the apocalypse. We need to prepare for trials by knowing the truth about God with thoroughness. God is not a break glass in case of emergency tool. God is living and active and you need him every day. We need to build our faith on a firm foundation that won't be demolished when the waves of suffering come crashing into us. We need true knowledge of God and we need to get that from his word. It's like digging a moat around your faith so that trials won't smash it down. Ruth did this. Ruth went with Naomi, not because she thought, I'll probably find a husband in Israel. That was extremely unlikely. That's just the overwhelming, lavish kindness of God that that worked out. Spoiler alert, the rest of Ruth. Ruth went with Naomi because she was committed to God, the God that Naomi and her family had taught her about. So prepare for trials, friends, by knowing God thoroughly. Build in yourself the assumption that God is kind. Bake that into your head and your heart so that when it's hard to believe, you're able to believe it. Second, second thing I want you to know. In the midst of trials, make a choice to press into Christ by faith. In trials, we're tempted to look in at ourselves and think, I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. Or even self-pity and woe is me. 
but we need to humble ourselves like Ruth humbled herself before Boaz's servant. Not to say, I deserve better, but to say, I trust you, God. I don't understand, but I trust you. We need to choose to believe that he is good when our circumstances tell us something different. Choose to believe that he is good when your circumstances tell you something different. Do not determine what God is like based on your present circumstances because we only have a limited perspective of those anyway. Determine what God is like based on who he's revealed himself to be in his word. We may not get deliverance from our trials in this life as we expect, but God is still good. That was Naomi's error in chapter one. She thought, well, I don't see how this could pan out. God's obviously against me. But we choose, we make a choice. It's not going to happen automatically. It's a choice to press into Christ by faith. And friends, finally, cling to the compassion and gentle care of God. So friends, if you are suffering today, God's message to you is not, get your act together, do better, try harder, can't believe you're doing this. That is not God's word to you today, friends. God's word to you is not do better. God's word to you is, I'm here. I'm here, overlooked woman. I'm here, tired man. I'm here, sick and oppressed and grieving one. God says, I'm here. God says, I see you. God says, I provided for Ruth and I'm going to provide for you. And how on earth could you ever possibly trust that? By looking to the cross and by looking to the resurrection where God proved that he is able to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations. Sinners, sufferers, come and find refuge under his wings because he is able to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your mercy and care and compassion for sinners and sufferers. I pray that you would be glorified by our life and by our worship. You are the living God. You are the compassionate God. You are merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God, help us to believe that when everything around us tells us it's not true. Hold us fast, God, because otherwise we will fall away. God, I thank you and praise you that you care for your people. And it's for your beautiful name that we pray.